At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it with me to the book of 1 Peter, or if you have your smartphone or some device um, and you want to, uh, if you've got a Bible app or just want to search the internet for First Peter, we're going to be uh, in verses 13 through 21 this morning. And while you're kind of turning there and getting set, um, I want to personally invite you to join me in just thanking everyone that helped make this morning possible from, yeah, th- from the tech crew that set up this morning and the band to our parking volunteers, the staff. So many people helped do this, and I'm just so gra- grateful that we get the chance to just kind of all be together and be a church family outdoors and enjoy this morning and worship together and hear from God's Word, and we're going to enjoy just a great time afterwards, tailgate lunch. Um, we're going to hang out. Hopefully you brought some food. Even if you didn't, order DoorDash. Just wait till after the sermon, and then uh, that's a joke. But no, we're just going to send a, a great time hanging out. So, um, But this morning, we're going to take some time to jump in uh, to First Peter in our series that we're doing, Unshakable. Uh, you'll find the kind of sermon outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along that way. And so uh, we're going to hope the wind isn't too terrible um, for me. That's great beard I have blocks it, so whatever it is. So um, it's football season. Right? Amen. Thank you. So I get somebody's excited about that. So um, I'm a huge football fan, uh, and uh, for all of my life, I have been a Cleveland Browns fan, which is why I'm wearing this jersey. I also didn't want to cause any of you distraction or stumbling by wearing a Buckeyes jersey, so I thought the Browns might be a little safer this morning. Um, and uh, you know, it's funny. I even I was telling someone earlier, even putting on this Baker Mayfield jersey to preach in, I was like, I just hope I don't throw an interception in the middle of this sermon. So that's what I'm really hoping for. But um, as long as my life, I've, I've been a Browns fan. And being a Browns fan, we go through the same cycle every single season. And if you're a Lions fan, which I know many of you are, you probably can relate to me a little bit in this cycle. So usually the season starts and about midway through the season, you kind of hit the point of despair where you realize your team's terrible. They're not going anywhere. And that usually ends the back half of the season. And at, at some point, the last like three games, you're just hoping the season ends because at that point, you just know you're not going anywhere and the season kind of ends. And then there's always the turn postseason for Browns fans, which is usually this turn. The coach gets fired, and a few weeks later, they pick a new coach, and that's the beginning of the long journey of hope that takes place in the offseason. And so there's a new coach, and then pretty soon free agency comes, and they, they draft a few players, and, and, and then all of a sudden, yeah, and then you get towards the beginning of the season and that's when the momentum starts to pick up and hope starts to build. And it's that hope that drives you to that next year to look for tickets, to read articles, to start to seek the Browns until they are terrible. And then you wait through the season and then you go through the whole cycle again. And living my most of my life as a Browns fan in that cycle, I've realized that hope is a very powerful thing. Hope drives ticket sales. Hope drives articles that are read. Hope drives fans that come back time and time again and fill the stadium. When you have hope, it drives your action. It drives the way that you live. Right? For many of you who maybe aren't Browns or Lions fans, that 
feels insane. Why do you put yourself through that same cycle over and over and over again? I mean, some of it's because we're born into it, but some of it is just every year there's that mantra, maybe next year, maybe next year will break through. Maybe something will change and it gets you super excited. Hope is a powerful reality, not just in sports, but hope can also be an incredibly powerful reality in life. In fact, I read one author this week, Tim Kimmel, who says, anything minus hope equals nothing. Hope is the human equivalent of oxygen when it comes to a person's ability to live effectively. Take hope away and everything else becomes irrelevant. And without hope, it is impossible to live a balanced life. And so this morning, as we think about the reality and the power of hope, I just want to start with a simple question, which is, what is your hope in this morning? Hopefully it's not in the Browns or the Lions. I can promise you that will likely end to disappointment. But when it comes to your life, if hope is essential, what is it that you're hoping in? And even more importantly, how is that hope playing out in your life? How is it affecting the way that you live? First, Peter opens his letter focused on hope. If you remember last week when we started, he begins in the beginning of this letter simply saying, beginning with praise, blessed be the Lord God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. But now in our passage that we find ourselves in this morning, Peter now turns our attention to how that hope actually affects our daily lives. And so I want to jump in and we're going to study this together. I'm going to pray the wind doesn't blow my Bible all over the place. We're going to be in verse 13 and I'm just going to take a second. I want to read this whole passage so you can just have a chance to hear it and then we'll kind of break it down Together. So this is 1 Peter 13 through 21. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times, For the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So Peter begins this passage with one of my favorite words in the Bible. He simply starts with the word, therefore. And therefore is always a great word because anytime you encounter it, one of the great biblical things you can do when you read through the Bible is simply ask yourself, What's the therefore, therefore? That might sound redundant, but it's a good way to think. Why does Peter start in this passage with this simple reminder? Well, because he's actually building on everything that he said previously to this passage and this idea of hope that he's beginning 
to unpack. And in, in many ways, it's kind of the key entry point into what we're going to hear this morning. Because what you're going to encounter, maybe what you heard even as I read the passage, is Peter is going to call us to three kind of commands or calls this morning that we're going to see. But before you can really get into those calls, you have to remind yourself of where he's been previously to that point. Peter, as I said earlier, starts this letter with praise by remembering and thanking God for what he has done in Jesus and that he has given us a living hope. Peter then moves in this passage to really calling us to how we actually live out that hope in our daily life, in the reality of our day-to-day grind that we all engage with. But I think it's important, even before we unpack those calls and commands, to stop and remind ourselves that when it comes to our faith, the things that God calls us to do always flow out of what God has done. Christianity is different than every other religion that you encounter because many religions that you encounter start with what you are called to do. They start with the action. They start with the requirement. They start with the things that say, if you do this, then maybe God will do this. But where Peter starts and the heart of our faith, it doesn't start with what we're called to do. It always starts with what God has done. This is important because when we encounter certain commands in Scripture, and you're going to encounter some challenging commands, if you interpret those calls and commands simply through a lens that says, well, God just wants me to do all this stuff, and then maybe he'll love me. Maybe he'll accept me. Maybe I'll have some reward on the other side of death. You miss the point of really what the heart of our faith is. The heart of Christianity is primarily about what God has done for us. That's why Peter spends the first 12 verses of his letter unpacking and praising God that he's caused us to be born again, that he's given us hope, that he's brought us to a faith that stands in the midst of trials, that he's led us to a place of salvation. And it's once you've realized that, once you've recognized what God has done fully for you, it can then lead you into the commands because the commands don't just come as a duty or an obligation that you have to fulfill. They actually become a delight in which you live. And as you live them out, you experience more of the life and the goodness that God has for you. And that's why I think it's important even sometimes when we study passages to stop and just reflect on one word and think, what does this word mean? Well, what it means is God has done something significant in Christ on our behalf. And then that leads us towards how we then respond and live. So Peter continues on and says, therefore, preparing your minds for action And being sober-minded, and here's the first command that he's going to give us in this passage. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter reminds us that we have hope in Jesus because of his death and resurrection. But now he calls us, those of us who follow Jesus, he calls us to set our hope. And here's the key word in that first command, fully. He modifies that idea of what it means to set our hope by saying that we must completely and totally set our hope on Jesus and on what God has promised to us. 
You know, I think it's easy for us as humans to, and even as Christians, to put our hope in a plethora of different things. We see in this time, in this political season, that there is a lot of expressions of hope around candidates or political ideologies where we hope change will come and things will shift. Some of us have put hope into various systems within our society. Others of us have lost hope in those systems. But it's easy for us sometimes when it comes to our hope to put a little piece towards Jesus and a little piece towards something else. Yeah, I hope in Jesus. I hope in the truth of what he will do. But I also hope that if this person gets elected, then maybe things will change in my life or in the world. Or I hope that if, this, if I get this job, or if I have this relationship, or if I get this grade. And it's easy for us sometimes to mingle hope in Christ into these other parts of our life. But what Peter says here is he says, no, you must set your hope fully on God or completely on him. For the Christian, there is only one place of hope, and that is in Jesus Christ. It cannot be in the world. It cannot be in the political system or ideology of our choice. It cannot be in the relationship that we have. For us as Christ followers, we have one place and one call to put our hope, and that is ultimately in Christ. And it's when our hope is in Christ that it then impacts the way that we actually live. That's why before Peter ever gets us to what he's going to call us towards in terms of our daily life, he first wants to remind us that the place we begin is by fixing our hope on Jesus and the future grace that he provides when he will come and return. If I was to give you that big idea that we want to look at in this passage, it's simply that, that future grace, the promise of what God will do in Jesus is the thing that transforms our conduct today. It impacts our life. And so this morning, if you're here, if you're watching the live stream, if you're visiting with us this morning, maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus, we're going to talk about what it means to live as a Christian. But that's not the starting point of Christianity, and it's not the starting point even if you're a Christian. The starting point is fixing your hope and faith on Christ Because when you do that, that's what impacts how you live. It's what you believe about what God is doing in the future and the hope of what he will do in Christ. Pastor Tim Keller gives us a helpful illustration, I think, to ponder what it means that hope and future grace and what is to come actually impacts the way we live. He says this, he says, imagine that you have two women who come from the same kind of socioeconomic status, who have the same education level, even the kind of same temperament and personality. And imagine with me that one day you decide to hire them to work a job. And for each of them, you hire them, you own a company at the time to come and work on an assembly line on your company. And it's it's boring, mundane work. It's take this part and put it in this part and kind of do the same routine over and over and over again. And you put them in these two women in identical environments, same room, same lighting, same process, same everything. You give them the same number of breaks every day, the same work, same personality, same temperaments. 
You try to make their conditions the same in every single way that you can. But imagine with me for a moment that when it comes to the work, you tell one of the women, listen, if you do this work and you do it well and you're faithful and you show up and you do the job that I'm asking you to do, at the end of the year, I will pay you $30 million. And you turn to the other one, unbeknownst to her, and you you say to her, hey, listen, if you do this job, at the end of the year, I'll pay you $30,000. How do you think the promise of reward would impact the way that they live and work? I'd imagine after a short bit of time, the one who makes $30,000 would probably get pretty fed up with the job pretty quick. But what about the person who's promised the $30 million? How do you think that will impact her conduct, the way she works? Something tells me she's going to be a little bit more happier about taking part A and putting it into part B. Because the promise of what is to come in the future, what her hope is ultimately in, impacts the way she actually does her work. It's similar for us. What we ultimately put our hope in to where we think the world is going, to what we think life is ultimately about. What we believe about that impacts the way that we live now. And so Peter wants to encourage us, the starting point for our lives is to set our hope on Christ, on God's promise of redemption, of what he will do in Jesus. And it's when we do that, that it then begins to impact the way that we live. And that's where Peter goes next in the passage. Look with me at verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter now moves from that first command of what we are called to set our hope on to now giving us the second command. We find it right in the middle of verse verse 15 where he says, you also be holy. You might say it this way. I think what Peter's trying to get at here is that if God is your father, you are called to be holy. That's the way in which you are to model and operate your life. You see this right at the beginning. Peter marks our relationship with God in Christ when he says, as obedient children. When you put your faith in Jesus, you get the experience of being adopted into God's family where he becomes your father and you get to be his son and daughter. So Peter says, as children then of God, who have God as their father, don't be conformed to your former passions. Don't align your life with the way in which you used to live. But instead, because God is holy, you also are then meant to live holy. You are meant to orient your life in the way God is. Now, holy holy and holiness, those can be very Christian words. They're not words we throw around a lot in our culture. So it's helpful for us to just understand what the Bible means when it calls us to be holy. The word holy simply means to be set apart, to be different or distinct. In the Bible, holiness is the chief characteristic of God. In fact, 
when you get to Isaiah 6 and you see the angels gathered around God's throne, what's proclaimed there before him is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. It's that threefold repetition of holiness that marks God. When we talk about God, what we mean is that God is holy, is that God is completely distinct and set apart from creation. He is completely other than us, than the universe in which we exist. And because of that, God is perfect in his attributes. He is, in fact, holy and set apart. So when Peter says, you are to be holy as God is holy, he's simply encouraging and reminding us that you and I, as followers of Jesus, are meant to be set apart. We are meant to be distinct people because we are God's people. We're supposed to look different than the world around us. We are not to be conformed to our former way of life, but we, in fact, are meant to look like God in who he is and who he calls us and designs us to be. Because God is our father and he is holy, if we are his children, we should desire and pursue holiness. Growing up uh, for most of my life, my dad, and, and still really for my life even today, my dad has always been one of my heroes. I was blessed with growing up with a good and strong father who loved us, who taught us the way of Christ. And from the youngest age, I can remember how much I looked up and wanted to be like my dad. My dad played basketball, so I wanted to play basketball. My dad was a pitcher, so I wanted to pitch when it came to baseball. My dad was a Browns fan, and now I'm stuck for life being a Browns fan. But in every single way as a kid, I could remember looking up at my dad and thinking, I want to be like that. I want to be like him. And so I would pursue the things that he pursued, and I would want to learn as much from how he lived life and how he did things. I don't think it's any coincidence that because my dad was a pastor, God called me to be a pastor. He birthed some of that desire in me even at a young age, and I saw a model and example before me. It's often like kids to want to be like their parents and to model their lives after them. And what Peter is essentially saying to us and to you as a follower of Jesus, he's saying, God is your father. Therefore, model your life after him. As he is, you should seek to be. Because he is holy and set apart, you, follower of Jesus, should seek to be the same way. I think the question that Peter wants us to ask is what parts of my life are not aligned with who God is? Because if I want to be like him, I will want to change. I will want to engage those things so that I can learn to be like my dad. So that I can learn to be holy as he is holy. But Peter continues in the passage and he gives us kind of our final call and command. He says, and if you call on him as father, and so he reminds us again of that beautiful truth that in Christ we are his children, God is his father. But now he shifts the picture of God. He says, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. P. 
Peter gives us the final call this morning for how he wants to live, us to live in light of the hope that we have in Christ. And what he calls us to do or calls us to live is to be faithful, to conduct ourselves in accordance with who God ultimately is. Essentially, what he's saying is, listen, if this is who God is, then you should seek to align your life with that. Your conduct, the way you actually live, should be aligned with God's ways. He reminds us that God is our Father in Christ, but that God is also a righteous judge. That God created the world to be a certain way, and that when we sin, we break God's laws. And like any good judge, when the law is broken, there is an accountability for what has transpired. And that God has created his world good and right. He designed it to work in harmony. But that we in our sinfulness and brokenness have broken God's laws. And because of that, God will in his righteousness hold us accountable. And so Peter reminds us of that and then says, in light of who God is, Conduct yourselves, align your life appropriately with God's ways. The call here for Peter to conduct ourselves righteously is really rooted in two realities. It's first rooted in who God is, and then it's rooted in what God has done. Look again, he gives us a clear idea of why he calls for this sort of conduct in who God is. That he is judge that he is righteous. And it's why he then calls us to live, here's the key, with fear. In the time of our exile, which is the time in which we live now. I think sometimes when it comes to what it means to follow God, we have lost the sense of fear of God. That somehow in our culture and world and even within our church, We have fashioned and watered down God so much to our own image that we have lost a sense of fear over him. Like a child who's lost respect for his parents, many of us, if we are not careful, can look at God and not live with respect for who he is, not take seriously the way that he has called us to live. And it's why Peter wants to remind us That part of what we do, part of the way that we engage God is as children, yes, but children who have a healthy sense of respect, of awe, and at times fear of God's power and God's authority. What we see time and time again throughout Scripture is that God is both powerful and that he is the chief authority over the world. Be reminded this morning that the God that we worship is not a God who is trivial and fashioned in our own making. He is not like us. He is different, more powerful, more righteous, more perfect, more just than we could ever hope to be. We're reminded of the nature of God from the very opening words of Scripture when it says, In the beginning, God created. Stop for a moment. Look around you. We get this morning to enjoy the fact that we are outdoors and enjoying this beautiful creation. 
Look at the trees. Look up and see the skies. Look up at clouds. Think of stars and universes, galaxies away that you will never, ever even get a chance to behold and remind yourself that God created those things. That for how amazing creation is, God is above that. God fashioned it and created it. He designed it. That's how powerful and unique he is. He merely spoke it and these things came into being. The scripture reminds us that no one can look upon or see him because he is so perfect and holy in his righteousness. And so Peter wants to remind us that you and I, we need to have a healthy respect, a healthy fear of God because of who he is. But Peter doesn't just want to leave us in a place because I think it's easy sometimes for us to feel that sense of dread when it comes to fear. But that's why he continues in verse 18. Yes, conduct yourselves with fear, but why? Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So Peter wants to remind you, yes, you should conduct yourselves with fear because of who God is, but don't forget what God has done for you. That if you are in Christ this morning, God has ransomed you. He's brought you out of the place of punishment that you deserve for breaking God's laws. And he's brought you into that place of relationship. Scripture reminds us time and time again that because of our sin, you and I owed a debt that we could never pay. We know the sense that when somebody breaks a law, there is a debt to be owed. We use phrases in our culture and society like they owe a debt to society for breaking the law. What scripture reminds us is that you and I owed a debt because we have transgressed God's law. We have broken and done what he has called us not to do. But Peter wants to remind us this morning that in Christ, God paid the debt that we could not pay. And what God paid for that debt, it was not trivial things like money, or gold, or silver, or the best the world has to offer. No. The debt that you and I owed was eternal. There is nothing that could pay our debt except one thing which God willingly offered, and it is the blood of his own son. Which is why Peter reminds us that your debt was paid not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. God knew your debt. He knew the fall. He knew the decisions you would make. And he planned before he even created one iota of this universe. He planned and willed that his son would go to the cross and die the death that you and I deserve in order to pay that debt, in order to rescue you. And not only did he know it would happen, he made it known to you and I. That's what Peter wants to say. God in his grace has made Christ and the debt that he paid known to us. 
that we don't live in the darkness of what God has done on our behalf, but God in his grace has revealed it to us that we might know Christ, that we might know that in him our debt is paid. And that that then becomes the motivation for how we live. See, the call for you to conduct yourself in holiness to live the way God has called you to live is not rooted in simple duty. It's not just rooted in a sense of obligation as if somehow you could do enough to earn back the debt that you owed. No, the call in what God desires for you to live is rooted in what God has already done for you in paying that debt, in rescuing you, in ransoming you, and then ultimately giving you that hope that you can fix yourself upon, that can impact and transform your life today. See, I think sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that the many things that we put our hope and faith in in this world fail to have the impact that we all desire. They fail to allow us to actually see the sort of change. I'll give you an illustration that I think helps always remind me of the failure of worldly hope at times. Ever, I'm for, the, for quite a while now, I've always struggled with, uh, with my diet. I eat like a 10-year-old kid too often. But I I always have this perpetual, one of those things I'm constantly working, I always have this perpetual idea that if I just can unlock like the right diet, the right thing, the right program, that somehow I'll be able to like transform myself to be a little bit healthier, a little bit better, a little bit. And yet like three weeks in, I'm always disappointed that the diet didn't work out, that things didn't quite go the way I had hoped. Because at the end of the day, it's not the diet that's ultimately going to fix me. There's a whole list of other things. And I think oftentimes when it comes to our life, we look at our lives, not just in terms of our physical selves. We look at our emotional selves. We look at our spiritual selves. We look at the world we live in, the way we engage. And it's easy for us to find these things that we think will be our savior. If we can just get this, if I can just get this piece in place, if I can just get ahead, if I can get the next promotion, if I can find the right guy or girl, if I can get that one piece in place and find the right kind of miracle drug, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be changed. But then we're disappointed time and time again. You see, the greatest disappointment is not simply not having hope. The greatest disappointment is putting your hope in something that will ultimately let you down. That ultimately doesn't provide the transformation and the change that you're looking for. And that's why this morning, Peter wants to remind us that there is one place that you can fix your hope that will offer you the sort of change in the depth of your soul and your heart and ultimately your life. There is one place, and that is to put your hope and your faith 
in Jesus Christ. All that God has done, all that God calls you to points towards that great reality. That's why Peter ends this section with these great words in 21. He says, who through him are believers in God. This is what I love. He says, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So I go back to that simple question that I asked you at the beginning. Where is your hope this morning? Where is your faith? What do you trust in? Something of this world that will let you down? Or is your trust in God and what he has done in Jesus Christ? That he has raised him from the dead. That he has paid the debt on the cross that you could not pay. Because it's the only place that what we place our faith and hope in can actually have the sort of transformation that we desire. And so I want to encourage you this morning, wherever you're at, to once again renew your faith and your hope in Christ. To not just do it partially, but to do it fully, completely and totally. Because it's only that that will lead to the sort of transformation that you desire. There's a great scene in the movie Zero Dark Thirty. If you've ever had the chance to watch it, it's a movie kind of based on several of the events of the pursuit of uh, the, assassin, or the killing of uh, Osama bin Laden. And some of it's fictional and some of it's historical and it's a fascinating and very interesting movie. But there's always a, a scene that stands out to me if you've ever seen it. Jessica Chastain plays the lead character in the movie and is this CIA agent who is researching and trying to find and locate where Bin Laden is at. And towards the end of the movie, there's a scene where they're all in a room and the CIA director asks them and asks kind of this task force that's been pursuing him. He asks, how certain are you that Osama Bin Laden is in this house that they had targeted? And they go around the room and each one answers, I'm 70% sure. I'm 80% sure. I'm 60% sure. And then the kind of climactic moment, they focus in on Jessica Chastain's character, and she says and looks very emphatically, I am a hundred percent sure that he is there. And ultimately in the movie, it's her confidence in that moment that leads them to the result at the end. Friends, it's only that sort of confidence, it's only placing that sort of hope in Christ that will lead to the transformation that you and I desire. It's not 80% of trust. It's not 60% of trust. It's saying, I confidently, fully set my hope, my desire, my everything on Him. And it's when you do that that it results in the transformation of life. It results in you becoming holy as God is holy. It results in the Holy Spirit coming and filling your life and heart and empowering you to see the transformation that God calls you to and that you desire. 
And so maybe this morning you've been exploring faith. Maybe you've been around the church. Maybe you've kind of been tiptoeing in the water. Maybe your hope has been in God, but maybe your hope has also been in other things. This morning, I want to invite you to set your hope fully, completely, 100% on Jesus Christ. Because I know when you do that, God will begin to work in your life in a new way. And you will begin to see incredible transformation. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you wherever you're at to bow your head and close your eyes with me. And just to kind of in the silence of your own heart, do business with God. I trust in this moment that he will begin to elevate in your soul. Maybe areas of your life that you have not put your hope. You have not fully put your faith in him. God is not here looking at you to condemn you. He's inviting you to a place of surrender. He's saying that that 10 or 20 or 30% that you keep holding on to yourself or that you keep putting in something else, if you'll just give that to me, I can do incredible things with it. So why don't you just take a moment while Amanda plays just in your own seat before the Lord. Just let him begin to speak to your soul and heart this morning. Let him begin to reveal those areas of your life where he's calling you to put your hope and trust in him. And then you don't have to do anything magical. You just have to say, God, I give this to you. Let him begin to work and let faith arise. Let's just take a moment together and then I'll pray for us in a moment. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.